Amen. Amen. Great to see you all here. Um, as a church, we've been going through a series on the parables that Jesus told, and we're coming to the end of that series now. And if you remember, Jesus told stories a lot of the time to whole crowds of people, a mixed bag. There were religious leaders there who were really opposed to what he was saying. There were people who were seeking after truth, not knowing what way to turn. And then there were his disciples, followers, who had already committed themselves to following him. And really these parables were stories that contained truth about the kingdom of God for those who were prepared to listen and really hear, and for those whose hearts were just open to respond to the truth. And today we're going to look at the parable of the ten bridesmaids, or virgins as they're sometimes called in some translations. So if you've got your Bibles, do turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read verses 1 to 13. It should come up on the overhead as well, on the projector. So this is Jesus telling a story. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five who were wise took along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by a shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming! Come out and meet him! All the bridesmaids got up, prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please, give us some of your oil, because our lamps have run out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. The door was locked. Later, the other five bridesmaids returned. They stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, said, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the hour of my return. So Jesus is telling this story we're told in the previous chapter just to his disciples. He had taken time out. He had gone to the Mount of Olives just to have time alone, him and his disciples. No crowds, no religious leaders, just him and them. And he starts to tell a series of stories about the future, about his return, and about the final judgment that was to come. And in a nutshell, these are stories that he's giving to warn them, to be prepared, to remain vigilant, to keep watch, not to allow complacency or apathy or unbelief to creep in to their faith. Because his coming is as certain as the dawn. We've been singing about it. He will return one day. And so, if you like titles, I've called this morning, How to Wait Well. How to Wait Well. 
Because in this previous chapter as well, Jesus has been telling stories about if a homeowner knew that his house was about to be burgled, he would stay up. He would keep watch. He would not allow that burglary to happen. He would keep his house safe. You must be ready, Jesus said. In the same way, he talked about a master who went away, a wise servant who was left, a faithful servant just expected his imminent return. Thank you. And he kept watch. He kept the house in order. Why? Because my master will return one day. I want to make sure that the house is in order. Jesus said, but a foolish, wicked servant thinks he's not coming back for ages, if at all. And he starts parting. He starts getting drunk, beating up the other servants even. Jesus says this in verse 50 of chapter 4. He said, the master of that servant will come on a day that that wicked servant least expects and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus doesn't mince his words, does he here? It can sound really harsh. And then we have in this next chapter, chapter 25, the parable of the ten bridesmaids which also sounds pretty harsh. Let us in, let us in. We were just out to buy oil. I don't know you. I don't know you. So to get a little context, Middle Eastern weddings, the, weddings that, the wedding that's been described here, particularly village weddings around that time, the celebrations took place around the groom's home. And they would often go on for days, depending on how deep the, the pockets were of the groom. Of course, we know Jesus went to the wedding at Cana, and the great shame was, the potential shame was, the wine was running out. And so Jesus stepped in. But these wedding celebrations started with a small ceremony at the bride's home, usually. And after that ceremony, the groom and the whole wedding party would then return to his house to let the celebrations begin. And waiting for them at the groom's house would be these bridesmaids, lamps at the ready, waiting to welcome the groom and the wedding party home. And so they had to wait. And I'm sure as often happened, particularly with Middle Eastern timekeeping, hot climate timekeeping, things overran. Things went on a little bit longer. We're told in the middle of the night, they finally arrive. Yet these bridesmaids had to wait, had to wait. We, we don't like waiting. We're not very good at waiting. Waiting is usually avoided at all costs. Claire and I are just off next week to Paris to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. I, I know we don't look old enough, I know, I know. But um, it's, we're really looking forward to it. I promised Claire, before we had kids, I would take her to Paris. 13 years late, better late than never. She has had to wait quite a long time. Very patiently, I might add. But since we booked this break, we have been inundated with requests and opportunities to skip the queue at all the museums. If you pay for it, you can walk straight past the queue because no one likes to wait. If you've got deep enough pockets, you can skip every queue in Paris. Just walk straight in, supposedly. You know, when you go to Legoland or Chessington, don't you just hate, well, it depends if you buy them, those queues, you've got two queues, haven't you? One where you've got an hour plus wait, and one, if you've bought your fast pass, you can sail straight past. And 
I don't know about you, but I find it really hard not to hold a little grudge, a little bit of resentment, as you've been sitting there with slightly frustrated kids, and you see these families strolling past you, right to the head of the queue. I, I, I have to just say a little prayer, confess my... Uh, yeah, anyway, I find it very hard to be gracious to them. Actually, we had the tables turned. We got the opportunity to have fast passes when we were taken off to Disney World last summer. So we got to experience, it's a very different experience, walking past queues that were actually two and a half hours plus long. We were able to walk straight past, and I felt I found it equally hard not to have that slightly smug smile <laughs> as I walked past going... I, I need a lot of sanctification still, I know. But we are terrible at waiting. We don't like waiting. Which guy here loves going clothes shopping with their wife? Now with my daughter. I find life just draining away as I wait outside a cubicle again and again. I don't know what it is. I, I blame the air conditioning. I just feel sapped of life. We don't like waiting. Current statistics say that now, because we're so used to fast internet speeds, if it takes longer than four seconds for a website to load, most people will have given up and click off and go onto another site. Four seconds, that's what it takes for us to give up and go, oh, this is taking too long, I'll click on another site. It's quite ironic, really, isn't it? Because then we spend hours going through our social media feeds, wasting a lot of time, but we hate waiting. Four seconds even. We're not good. And yet here, Jesus is telling his disciples that actually waiting is part and parcel of being his disciple. It's part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. Waiting is part of that. In fact, we're told the whole world is waiting for the return of Jesus. Romans 8.22 says, We know the whole of creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to now, this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, inwardly groan as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, as we've been singing about this resurrection when Jesus comes again. For in this hope, while we wait in hope, we are saved. Dave Holden spoke a couple of weeks ago on being a people with hope, a people of hope. And you know, there is this inward groaning while we wait. We know the whole earth is groaning, isn't it? We just see it at the moment. We've got floods, you know, either side, east and west at the moment. People are groaning. Nations are groaning. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we can be those who wait well, who wait with hope, who wait with perseverance, with our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. We can wait with full assurance that his promises always come to pass. His promises will always be fulfilled. And just as labor pains signify, guarantee that, that new birth is coming, new life is coming, so the earth is groaning in anticipation of what is to come. Let's never lose sight of what is to come. 
In our waiting, we can wait with hope. And I just want to draw out some things this morning in the time we've got left that hopefully will help us wait well to live lives as faithful and wise servants or followers of Jesus, as ones who don't lose heart and don't lose hope and don't lose the plot or lose focus, but for those who go the distance. That's what God's heart is for all of us, that we go the distance. And I know these passages are in the context of Jesus talking about his return, but I think these principles can equally apply to any time we are waiting on God. When we are waiting for something specific from God, I think these principles can apply. And the first principle is God is never late. It's very simple, isn't it? God is never late. Simple, but it's a really difficult lesson to learn and to trust. God, you are never late. In the story, we're told that the groom has been delayed. I would argue that there is a difference to being delayed and to simply being late. And in fact, we are given a big clue in the Bible as to why there has been a delay with regards to Christ's return, why it hasn't happened yet. 2 Peter 3 shines a real really clear light on this. It says here, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, when's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since the beginning of creation. Nothing changes, everything goes on. You know, we hear those voices today, don't we? We even hear those voices in our own heads. Is this really going to happen 2,000 years on? Can I really still believe Jesus is coming again? It sounds a little bit like a fairy tale. It sounds a little bit like a pipe dream. Cynics would say, it is a fairy tale. It's just to keep people in line. Don't forget he's coming back. But here's the truth. Peter goes on. Verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's not late. He's not slow. As some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. God is not dragging his feet. He is not late. But we are waiting because of his mercy. He is way more patient than us. And his patience means the salvation of many, many more people to come to a saving knowledge of himself. Not wanting anyone to perish, but come to repentance and into an eternal relationship with him. This is the heart of our Heavenly Father. This is a heart of grace. This is a heart of love, a heart of mercy. This is why we wait for his return. And that gives me so much hope. So much hope. Because God knows there are still people in Sutton. There are still people in Epsom. There are still people in London. In the nations. Yet to respond to the gospel. 
who will respond to the gospel. There are people who will be coming through those very doors because you guys have been sharing Jesus with them. And God is waiting, not wanting any to perish, but all to come into a relationship, an eternal relationship with him. This is why we wait. Because right now, it's not too late. It's not too late. So while we wait, looking forward to the day that... God will wipe away every tear and make all things new. We can wait with thankful hearts. We can wait knowing that he is a patient God, that there is purpose in the delay. There's purpose in the delay, and it's a wonderful purpose. It shows that God is slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. He is just in all his ways, and he is perfect in his timing. Some people here need to hear that. People here need to hear that. He is perfect in his timing. He is never late. Second principle that the story tells us is that in our waiting, we need to be ready in the present, but also plan for the future. Because we don't know the hour of his return. We need to be ready, but we also need to be strategic. We need to invest. We need to plan. Those wise wise bridesmaids had lamps burning. They were ready, but they also had spare oil in their tanks. And we need to live lives that are ready for Christ's return. Again, 2 Peter 3, we get some great advice. How do we live lives ready in the present? It says, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. How's your relationship with God right now? Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with your brother and sister in Christ? Just... I thought it was so good how Rob just encouraged us just to, is there anything that you just want God just to burn up? Because that's all it takes. Confession, quick repentance, heartfelt repentance, confess and turn. Repentance is a wonderful opportunity for us to actually walk in the freedom that God has already paid for us. It's already done. You know, we we don't have to carry the shame and the guilt that Jesus has already said is no longer ours to carry. We just simply need to come, God. This is, I've got this rubbish in my life. Just come and burn it up. In a moment, we can be made right with God. We have that promise that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all, all unrighteousness. Thanks to the gift of righteousness through Jesus' death on the cross. We can be found spotless. Listen to this. You can be found spotless, blameless, at peace with him. Said it is finished on that cross. It's a done deal. Another way we can be ready in the present is by becoming not so absorbed with the material things of this world, so obsessed with, with the material stuff, Like so much of our world is, consumer culture, it's all about my income, my house, my car, all that stuff. That's not preparing us, ready for Christ's return. Instead, we need to store up treasures in heaven. Colossians 3, setting our minds on things above so we can live lives ready for his return. So in the immediate, in the present, we need to invest 
Invest in our own, growing our own faith. You know, waiting on God is never static. It means seeking him, seeking his will, getting deep into his word, growing in our knowledge of him, deepening our roots in him. As Jesus said in John 15, abiding in him so we can run the race, as Paul says, with perseverance. You know, some people have so much zeal and passion when they first encounter Jesus when they first discover the good news of, of the gospel, but then can fizzle out when trials come, when life just gets busy. It's like going back to that parable of the sower that we started this series off with. It's like those seeds falling into rocky ground. They spring up quickly, but then fizzle out and wither so quick because there's thin soil. The roots are shallow. So we need to keep our own spiritual tanks full, but we also need to invest in the future because we don't know the hour of his return, which means investing in others, leaving a legacy. As we've been talking about the other day, it goes back to being spiritual mums and dads, producing spiritual sons and daughters. Producing a godly legacy, investing in the next generation. We, we invest with a long-term plan. And we need to remember that while we wait, actually, God has already given us so much. In fact, we're told he has given us everything right now for life and godliness. While we wait for his return, while we wait for, for breakthrough, while we wait for healing, while we wait for a new job or a spouse or, or a, a, just a, a new life, just need new change in my circumstances, while we wait for that, we need to remember that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We are rich in Christ. You are accepted in him. You are loved in him. And listen, the delay has absolutely no bearing on his love for you. You might be waiting for some big things. The delay has absolutely no bearing on his love for you. You are dearly loved. He's given you himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's what we just read about, this deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. But right now, we have God himself, the Holy Spirit. His promise never to leave us. His promise never to desert us. And it's through him that we persevere. It's through him and his grace alone that we can wait with hope and, and just that assurance that God is faithful. You know, so often... We can be so focused on what we are waiting for, we can miss out on what we already have. I believe God is saying to some people here who are waiting for some big things, don't lose sight of what you already have in Christ, what you have already been given. You know, we are so obsessed with seeing God change our circumstances and forget that actually God is more interested in seeing us changed. Don't be so focused on your need that you lose sight on what you have. What is in your hand this morning already? You might be saying, God, I, I need this. I really need this. But what is already in your hand that you can use to glorify him? Might be just a few loaves, a few fish. <laughs> we know what happens when we give that to God. 
Don't lose sight of what's already in your hand while you wait. Which takes us to the third principle, which is we wait well by understanding that actually the waiting is part of God's shaping. It's part of his shaping. When you are waiting on God, you are not on the substitute's bench watching the action. You are still on the field of play. You are still on the field of play. Remember, I think it's Pete Gregg who said that in prayer, it's not us shouting from the sidelines, but actually it's us getting directly involved in the action on the playing field. And, you know, some of us say, well, when I finally get this answer to prayer, then my life can start for real. Once I just get over this hurdle, then my life can start. But actually, you know what? The waiting is often part of the plan. You still have gifts to put to use right now. What's in your hand? So Jesus, straight after telling this, this parable about the ten bridesmaids, tells the story of the, the parable of the talents. That while we wait, we are to be good stewards of what we have been given already. While we wait, we are not to, to bury our resources. We're not to just to put them on hold, but we're to use them, put them to work. Our waiting is not a time to be passive, but to be actively involved in investing what God has given to produce glory for him. You know, I think of Joseph. <laughs> he had this massive promise, didn't he, from God, this dream God had given him. He was too immature at the time to handle it well. He handled it terribly. But then he was thrown in a pit, sold as a slave, falsely accused, thrown into prison. You think, year after year, must have thought, God, have you forgotten me? What about this promise? What about this dream? 13 years he waited. And yet, from God's perspective, he was placing him right in the place where he could fulfill that word, that prophetic calling he had. In his waiting, each step of the way, God was shaping him to be able to handle that calling. The waiting was part of the shaping. From God's perspective, the, the waiting was a mighty discipleship training camp. It was a journey. And we get that wonderful statement, don't we? Genesis 50, 20. Joseph finally encountering the very brothers who had left him for dead, sold him into slavery. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done. God is with you in the waiting. He hasn't deserted you. You know, we could list Noah, Moses, Abraham, you know, all those others, many, many others listed in Hebrews 11, commended for their faith in the midst of their waiting. They waited with their eyes on the prize, with their eyes on the promise. The waiting is part of his shaping, his preparing, his building you up in the faith. And finally, fourth principle I just want us to look at is simply get your own oil. Get your own oil. Suddenly the cry goes out, he's come, the groom has arrived, get ready, get ready. You know, just wiping the sleep from your eyes. And, and five bridesmaids, it's really bad news. It's like, ah, oh, we've got no oil. Our lamps have no oil. And I don't know about you, when I, when I read this, on the face of it, I think the other five, the wise ones, 
you think, that's not a very Christian response, is it? Sorry, we've got just enough for ourselves. See you later. It's just, that's not very Christian, isn't it? It's better to give than receive. You know, share, share alike and all that stuff. I think that's a bit mean of them. But listen, if they shared their oil, then 10 of them wouldn't have had enough to last the duration of the feast. They had just enough themselves to last the distance. Better to have five lit than 10 unlit. Now remember, Jesus is talking just to his disciples here. He's talking to those who profess to follow him. That includes us. Ten bridesmaids represent the church. And so Jesus is basically saying within the church, within those who profess to follow him, there are wise and there are foolish. In other words, this is a message of warning. And it's a message of warning for those who are simply going through the motions. For those who act like follower of Jesus, I've got the lamp. They've got all the external religious trappings and appearances, but actually they are empty inside. Outwardly religious, inwardly empty. And commentators debate about the meaning of the oil. Actually, we're not explicitly told. But for me, oil is often used to describe the Holy Spirit. And oil is what fuels the lamp. In this, in this story. So for me, I think it's fairly self-explanatory. It is people who look like followers of Jesus, but don't have God's Spirit in them. They are spiritually dead. You know, and as followers of Jesus, we are called to be lights, to burn brightly for Jesus, to burn brightly in this dark world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, it's about us burning brightly. And yet, listen, we don't burn with our own fuel. If you do, you'll burn out pretty quick. Many of us have tried that, trying to burn in our own strength. No, we burn with the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We burn with the presence and with the power of God. But here's the truth. Here's the warning. You cannot borrow someone else's faith. You cannot borrow someone else's anointing. You cannot borrow someone else's relationship with God. That's why the groom says you can't come in because they never truly knew him. That's what Jesus is getting at. That relationship with the groom, with Jesus, simply wasn't there. There's no oil there. There's no life. When we truly confess our sins and accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior and invite his Holy Spirit into our hearts, we become temples of the Holy Spirit. But we can't borrow that off other people. It needs to be personal. It needs to be yours. That relationship simply wasn't there for those foolish ones. Because the thing is, if you'd really known him, you would have invested and prepared and followed his, his instructions. As Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will do as I command. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will do everything you can to walk in love, walk in forgiveness, walk in repentance, walk in holiness, walk in step with his Holy Spirit. And a time will come when it's too late. And it's quite a hard word, isn't it? But the good news is it's not too late now. It's not too late now. 
I think this is a massive challenge to the church, particularly in our Western culture, because it's so comfortable. We can get drowsy, very easy to fall asleep, can slip into going through the motions, slip into doing dead works, doing church, but without any oil. I think there's too many, too many churches, too many Christians doing that. And there's a danger we can switch off from what is going on around us spiritually. We can become complacent and get drowsy and fall asleep. And I know we keep flagging this up, but, but really our hope is, particularly with the Living Free course, that hopefully this will help us specifically in this area of being spiritually astute, spiritually aware, awake, because you know what? The world needs the church that is burning brightly, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the presence and the power of God, lighting the way to the wedding feast. You know what? That's our job, isn't it? To burn brightly, to not run out, to, to welcome people, to lead people to the wedding feast so they can draw their own oil from the true source of life itself. I was reading Artie Kendall's book, Based on this parable, The Midnight Cry, many of you all know Artie Kendall, prolific author, speaker, former, um, uh, used to lead uh, Kensington, no, Westminster Chapel, didn't he? A lot of respect for Artie Kendall. His personal belief, this is why he wrote The Midnight Cry, is that there's going to come a massive wake-up call to the church before Christ returns. And it will come in the form, he believes, of a mighty move of the Holy Spirit that will be marked by churches that that hold to the Word of God and churches that pursue the Spirit of God are coming together because so often there's this dividing line between the Word and the Spirit. and, And of course, they can never really be divided because the Word of God is Spirit inspired. And when these two come together, he believes there will be a wake-up call to the church, a massive outpouring of the Spirit that the world has yet to see. And I'm praying for that. I'm praying for that. And he didn't know at the time that actually this is exactly what Smith Wigglesworth prophesied. He was a British evangelist. He prophesied this way back in 1947, prophesied about the charismatic renewal, prophesied about there were two moves of the Spirit. He said there's a third that's going to come when the Word of God and the Spirit of God unite. That excites me. And I think it just models God's grace again, that actually we need to have our oil lamps full, full. As R.T. says, though, the thing about being asleep is that you only ever know you're asleep when you wake up. You don't fall asleep and go, oh, at last, I'm now asleep. It's when you wake up and go, oh, I've been asleep. It's true, isn't it? It's true spiritually as well. When you're spiritually asleep, you don't know it until you wake up. And then you go, oh my word, I have been spiritually asleep for all that time. And I've been awakened now to the presence of God, to the call of God in my life, to this holy fire. Too many Christians, too many churches don't know they're spiritually asleep. And that, you know, sleep is comfortable. It's not very taxing. That's the whole point of getting natural sleep. But you know what? The wake-up call is a necessity unless we're happy to miss the party. And the thing is, God doesn't want any of us to miss out. If you're here and you don't have that intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, this is an invitation to come and draw from him, to repent of living 
You know, perhaps you're living one foot in one camp, another foot in the other camp, one foot in the world, one foot in, well, I'm sort of kind of modeling a Jesus lifestyle, I think, going to church, but actually your heart is far from him. Can I encourage you? This is an invitation to really surrender your life to God. We've been singing a lot about surrender. This is what it's all about, truly surrendering everything to Jesus. You can't borrow it off other people. I don't know what you're waiting for personally either, but listen, we all need to seek God's word, which we're told is the lamp to our path, and we all need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the oil in our lamp. Let's be vigilant. Let's be full of hope as we wait and keep watch for God to move. Why don't we all just stand to our feet?